Well, it's uh, a pure delight to stand here now and turn our attention to the to the Word of God and to the teaching of the Word of God. Um, after we've heard the Scripture read and after we've bathed everything in prayer, we're ready to jump in with both feet into a passage that uh, I know is familiar to you, but perhaps you've not thought about it quite in the way we will be presenting it today. Today is Palm Sunday, as you know, and it's a time when we focus our attention on Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where he presented himself as Israel's rightful Messiah, King. And that's a very condensed uh, uh, definition of Palm Sunday. We'll flesh it out, of course, as we go on in just a bit. But, But this day is also a time when many people come out of the woodwork and flood into churches out of a sense of duty or obligation or tradition. They're what we call holiday Christians. They come to the church only on a special Christian holiday. They dress up and would even call themselves Christians because, well, that's what they were brought up as, Christians. They may even speak respectfully of church enjoy being in the church auditorium for a change, sing some familiar hymns, and hear the minister preach on something light and fluffy for about 15 minutes. He doesn't disappoint. After that, they've done their part in showing up and are happy to be dismissed so they can continue the religious celebrations they began in church that morning at home that afternoon around the kitchen table, eating with friends and family. The entire day is quite an ordeal for them, but it has to be done, you see. It's tradition, and so they do it. God should be honored, actually, that they should show up in their Sunday best, especially since they don't make a habit of it. After all, that's what Christian folk do. Now, the interesting thing about this group is that there is not one spiritual bone in their entire body. And they may congratulate themselves for mustering the energy to get all dressed up and take time out to come to church. They may think that they are perhaps doing something noble. They may even think that God is pleased with their church attending gesture. How can he not be? And hopefully he'll not forget it the next time they need him to do something for them. But they are sorely mistaken. None of, the, none of their perceptions about God are true. And truth be told, he hates their kind of spirituality. That's right. It is nothing more than a display of hypocrisy and superficiality. And the Lord wants none of it. There are plenty of these kinds of churchgoers in American churches. Plenty. And... They're not just holiday Christians either. There are others who actually carry on in somewhat of a devoted way, dutifully attending a church service every Sunday to get lost in the entertainment of the service. So prevalent in modern churches today, the loud music, the hyped up rallying moments when the worship leader gets people emotionally worked up the swaying, the waving of the hands, everyone worshiping God in his and her own way. But that's just the problem. Many in American Christianity believe that worship is very much a private matter, that worshipers define for themselves 
God is what he is to each one, Jesus as well. But if there is one thing that God abhors, beloved, it is individualized, customized worship that suits the worshiper. God has established how he wants to be worshipped, how the worshiper must approach him, and how he wants to be represented by Christians. Christians, or Christianity, I should say, is not a private matter, but it's very much a public one. We all belong to a body as a result of being born again, and we demonstrate that faith uh, that by faith and repentance. It's really a tragedy that so much of what takes place under church roofs in the name of Jesus is counterfeit. Proof of this is when those caught up in synthetic faith movements get a glimpse of genuine faith and how it's lived or a good dose of sound biblical teaching and expository preaching or is challenged to actually follow Christ and be prepared to die for him and they recoil. They want nothing to do with it. They find biblical faith unrecognizable and quite frankly highly offensive. They reject the real God of the Bible for one that they made in their own image, which is one they can surely live with, and one who won't interrupt their lifestyle, but but he'll condone it. And they reject the obedient, spirit-filled, selfless, uh, surrendering kind of life that Jesus claims and is fit for running the race of faith and fighting the good fight. The triumphal entry has... Several points of interest, but we look at only one this morning, and here it is. The need for genuine faith. To worship the real Christ in the way God demands. And how church folk, even those who who think that they're right with God, when they are actually far from him, must get right with him and now before it's too late. Let's get into this with the help of Luke 19. Take your Bibles and turn there if you're not there already. We've heard that read quite ably, verses 41 to 44. There are two major truths there that I want to rehearse with you. Here's the first one. It's in verse 41. The Lord is grief-stricken over superficial and counterfeit faith. Very simple. The Lord is grief-stricken over superficial and counterfeit faith. Here's the verse. When he, that is Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. He saw the city and he wept over it. Now you ought to know that this is only one of two places in the entire New Testament where Jesus is said to weep. He weeps for the inhabitants of Jerusalem as he drew near the city. What made him weep? the utter belief and hard-heartedness that the Jews of his time displayed through the facade of worship. He finds their faith in him, demonstrated in shouts of Hosanna and with waving palms, actually to be a crying shame because he knows that it's counterfeit. It's as if Jesus said to them upon this first glimpse of the city in all its glory, look, How far you have fallen away from me, a crooked and perverse generation. This is never what I intended for you. 
The only other recorded instance in Scripture of Jesus weeping is John chapter 11, and it's for the exact same reason, counterfeit faith. In fact, let's hold our place here and turn over to John, turn ahead to John chapter 11. I want us to look at that for a moment because I believe it'll help to enhance our understanding of Luke 19 verse 1. John 11 records the true life account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. In verse 35, known as the shortest verse in the Bible, we read, Jesus wept. Now, some today suppose that Jesus wept because, well, he loved his friend Lazarus so much, who is now dead and cold in the tomb. Now, that's what some present on that day actually thought as well. Notice verse 36. So the Jews were saying, oh, see how he loved him. But these onlookers were misinterpreting Jesus' tears. No doubt he loved Lazarus. If we look back to the beginning of the chapter, verse 5, Jesus even says so. But Jesus wouldn't have shed tears of grief over someone that he would soon raise from the dead, would he? Doesn't make any sense. We also know that it was, it was Jesus' intention all along to show up or not to show up, I should say, until Lazarus died, so that he could perform this miracle of resurrection in the presence of his own disciples who would then believe. So why does he weep? Well, it's because of the acute displays of unbelief all around him. Many present that day, despairing in his presence, were actually the same ones who earlier said that they had believed in him. Mary and Martha are good examples. Up to this point, both said they believed Jesus to be the Christ. And in verse 21, you'll notice Martha actually confirms this. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. Well, that sure sounds as if she had faith in Jesus, doesn't it? And his authority to command life. Listen to her proclamation in verse 27. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now, this certainly sounds like genuine faith. How about Mary? Well, she says almost the same thing in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, by the way, these are not said in anger, just so you know, their simple testimonies to their supposed confidence in what Jesus could have done for their brother. They lead us to believe that both at least had a sense that Jesus was Messiah. Perhaps it's better to say that their view, their view not at least, but at best, was that they were confident that Jesus had some unique relationship with the Father, so that if he asked the Father for Lazarus to be raised or, or, or healed, the Father would have granted it. But that's about it. Does that sound like genuine saving faith? I would say no. No, it doesn't. And the lack of faith bears itself out in verse 39. When Jesus tells them to roll the stone away and expose the body of Lazarus so he could bring Lazarus back from life, to life from death, the sisters are not for it. Lord, Martha protests, Lord, by this time there will be a stench 
for he's been dead four days. Can you hear the the despair in her voice, the hopelessness and wholehearted, wholehearted mistrust in the Lord, the author of life? This is not faith. They have no saving faith. And Jesus responds in verse 40 and makes it very clear. Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And with that, he confronts their unbelief. What transpires here? Well, two women who indicated that they believe that their beloved teacher is the Christ, the one sent from God, who could have saved their brother and quite possibly even now bring him back from the dead if he asked the Father, behave in a way that betrays their belief. They have no belief, no trust. Jesus responds to the sister's display of unbelief and despair first with anger. Oh, yes, with anger. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. Now that translation, deeply moved, is too soft for the Greek word behind it. Rather, the Greek word here means outraged. That's right. In fact, it is the word that describes the snorting sound horses make when they're agitated. I can vouch for this. In my farm, where all the horses hang out together, whenever one is agitated, for whatever reason, the snorting comes very loud. The, the nostrils flare. You could tell he's agitated, and you've got to be careful. John... Um, John uses this word figuratively to refer to Jesus' emotional indignation. That's right. He's angry. He's outraged. Those around him who once confessed him as Lord were now showing by their grief and hopelessness that they really didn't believe in him as the resurrection and the life. Mary and Martha and others were were actually ready to count their losses and go home grief-stricken and despairing of life itself and right in front of the author of life himself. Can you imagine? Is that not a grand insult to the Lord? Jesus' second response is to weep in verse 35. He cries not as Mary and Martha do, mourning and wailing, of course. He is, his crying is different. It's a burst of tears that stream down his face. The Greek word is different for crying here than it is for the crying of Martha and Mary. And he cries over their unbelief. And the unbelief that those who should have known better are displaying right now. He finds a fallen world and depraved hearts that can be so fickle and fake putting on airs, pretending, hypocritical, a crying shame. Yes, they follow him one moment, desert him the next. What happened to their faith? Some ask. Well, the answer is simple. They never really had it to begin with. Genuine faith produces loving obedience to Christ. It runs not from him, but to him. It recognizes Jesus to be a safe retreat, a mighty fortress, a bulwark never failing. The light that lights the way to see clearly through the error and deception of our world. Jesus in his humanness 
sees no faith and responds first in outrage and then with tearful, deep sadness. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41, Jesus bursts into tears right before he enters Jerusalem for the exact same reason the depraved condition of the human heart that wants Jesus for selfish reasons and will put up a good front until he's no longer any benefit to them and then they will reject him just as quickly as they accepted him. The lost will often, you see, accept Jesus on their own terms. And when they discover that he doesn't actually meet their expectations after all, well, they no longer follow him and some even get hostile about it. We're not, we're not given a glimpse, of course, of the true condition of the depraved hearts here in this crowd until the end of Jesus' Passion Week, where they turn against him. In fact, we might be close to the truth in saying that not even the crowd themselves on this occasion knew that they had superficial, uh, a superficial commitment, a counterfeit faith that would back down once the going got tough. It's, it's, it's as if they were unaware that they were capable of, of turning from the Lord. But Jesus was quite aware that this would happen. He knew that God had ordained to come to pass this particular falling away. And he was grief-stricken in advance over superficial faith that would soon be exposed in just short of a week. I want to say that Jesus crying here is really astonishing when you think that he cannot help but weep over something that he already knew was going to happen. Think about this. He already knew that it was going to happen. He may have been saddened by the superficiality, the counterfeit, the selflessness, I'm sorry, the selfishness behind the outward form of faith that characterized these depraved hearts, but he wasn't blinded by it. He wasn't taken off guard, and he was terribly sad. And isn't that incredible? He knew it was going to happen, yet he was still sad. <clears throat> no matter how well the Lord knows the condition of the depraved heart and the actions that it produces, he still grieves at its sight. It's still something that he hates to see. Every time he witnesses it, he finds it to be no less unacceptable, no less offensive, no less pathetic than the last time he encountered it. Well, that's because the Lord never changes. He doesn't grow numb or tolerant to sin. He never gets used to it, ever. I might illustrate the position that that Jesus was in, along with the emotions and the thoughts that he experienced with a, a story about time travel. Yeah, time travel, yes, time travel. I've always been fond of the idea of time travel, Einstein's theory of relativity and the rest. It's fascinating to me, but let me begin this way. What Jesus was experiencing at this very moment just before his triumphal entry, might be compared to those same feelings and emotions and thoughts that you have experienced when somebody has betrayed you. Now think for a moment, back to a, a time that that has happened. Somebody has betrayed you. Has that ever happened to you? Betrayal is an awful thing to experience, beloved. 
It's an awful thing. Now suppose, just suppose, that you could go back in time to the betrayal itself, the very moment, maybe a few moments before. First she smiles at you, and then she follows that up with a wonderful compliment and a hug. Then comes the part where you turn around and she stabs you in the back. Now, the only difference this time around is that you know it's coming, right? More than that, you see through her smiles and hugs and empty platitudes, but you don't feel any less hurt the second time around, do you? Reality of it still grieves you. How do we know that? Well, because by simply replaying it just in our memory bank sparks the same awful feelings, right? Now, that's the way people, that's why people will often refuse to talk about the past, past injurious events in their lives. Why? It's too painful. We can be sure that in time travel, the second time around, you would feel the same way you did the first time it happened. Now, in time travel, you need to know, this is a rule, you cannot change anything in time travel. It's a cardinal rule. So you have to play along in this scene. You smile on cue. You hug back just at the right time. And then you turn your back and brace yourself for the stab. Once again, even though you're, you're not caught off guard by her hypocrisy, but because you know who she really is, it's, it's no less painful, is it? And long before she betrays you, in the throes of her joy and sweet fellowship with you, you force back the tears and try to swallow the lump in your throat because you know that none of it is genuine. Jesus knew ahead of time. To be more precise, he ordained it before the creation of the world. But knowing it doesn't make his part any easier to play. And for a brief moment, Luke shows him stepping out of character, out of time, if you will, and burst into tears before stepping back into his role and riding into town to be received by the empty praises from false disciples. Let's be clear. Jesus cries not for the cruel and unusual punishment that awaits him, but for these deceived individuals who worship him with their lips while their hearts are far from him. He is grieved because they are so lost, so hardened to the truth, so unwilling to embrace it. They don't know that they're at war with God or that God is their enemy or realize just how much in bondage to sin they really are. They don't understand the depths of their deception. I appreciate Luke's literary skills as a writer here and the contrast that he purposely builds into the text to show that Jesus and his crowd, or this crowd, could not possibly be more opposite. For example, on the one hand, there is the crowd. On the other hand, there is Jesus. They're happy. He's sad. They're shouting victory praise. He's crying. They're defeated already, he rides victoriously. They have a serious problem, he's their only hope. They're deceived, he's the truth. They're selfish, he is selfless. Jesus weeps because they're not on the same page with him 
although they think they are, all the while. Before we leave this section, let's understand that Jesus' grieving over the counterfeit faith reveals a heart of compassion. He does dismiss the crowd. Uh, He doesn't rather dismiss the crowd or refuse to present himself as their Messiah King. His desire is still to see them become genuine worshipers. Some of them will, but he grieves for those who won't. Jesus' weeping is not simply an evidence of his humanness. No, it's evidence of divine compassion. If you don't know this about God, then you need to know it now. God calls people to repent and live and delights not in the death of the wicked. God's compassion is real and honest. And it is a wonderful thing. But let me also say that God's compassion exists in complete harmony with his justice. Which brings us to the next truth, the second of the two. And it goes like this. The Lord gives certain people over to their depraved practices without the hope of eternal life. It's a rather hopeless thing, but it is nevertheless true, and which makes saving faith all the more urgent. The Lord gives certain people over to their depraved practices without the hope of eternal life. This is verses 42 to 44. We see a great... Or, or, or I should say a rather complex display of Jesus' responses that we need to carefully examine. Now, I said complex. I didn't say contradictory. On the one hand, Jesus shows a compassionate side by weeping over the lost and depraved condition of these counterfeit followers. And on the other, he is quick to pronounce just and righteous judgment on those who will remain hardened. He is the God who delights not in the death of the wicked, calling them to repent and turn to him and live. But his ultimate plan does not include, or I should say does include, judgment for those who will reject him. It includes it. In verse 42, we see plainly enough a pronouncement of judgment upon those who will refuse to acknowledge the truth that was before them. If you had known this day, even you, the conditions that make for peace, but now it has been hidden from your eyes. What's Jesus saying here? Well, at first blush, it seems that, it seems that the reason most in the crowd will, re- will later reject Jesus is because they're missing some important, some important truth, some life-saving information and that if they only knew about it, they, they never would have rejected Jesus later. They would have had genuine saving faith. And it's at this point that we're reminded of what Jesus said way back in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well. Do you remember? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It reminds us of that, but there is a difference. The Samaritan woman was legitimately ignorant. She was ignorant of important details about Messiah and salvation. The Israelites at the triumphal entry, however, were not. 
ignorant. They did have the truth. Remember, these were God's people, right? They, they had the prophets. They had scripture. They were people of the covenant. They were truly they were truly, there were truly saved Jews at this time as well. In addition, they witnessed Jesus' public ministry. They heard his teaching, some firsthand and others secondhand. They saw him heal the sick, make the blind see and the lame walk. Crowds of Jews followed him for three plus years. <clears throat> and all in Israel knew of him. Many had been with him, and many more had seen him on several occasions. They saw him confront the religious leaders, which they will never forget. They stood in the field for hours listening to this great sermon on the mount. Somewhere among the 5,000 that he miraculously fed with a, with a few fish and loaves of bread, he he went from town to town throughout Israel. Most everyone, no doubt, got word early on in Jesus' ministry that he was claiming to be Messiah when he preached his first sermon in the synagogue. His text was the Messianic portion of Isaiah 61, and after reading it, he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, most Jews at this time did misunderstand Messiah, yes, and many of Jesus' disciples shared a misunderstood view of Messiah. They saw him only as they wanted to see him. And on only and, and only and only on the terms that and only on their terms rather would they receive him. But in less than a week's time, they would see that he didn't measure up to their false expectations. Of Messiah, and they would reject him. So, if Jesus, if the Jews here were not intellectually ignorant of certain information, how do we understand Jesus' statement in verse forty-two? If you had only known in this day the conditions that make for peace, what are the conditions that make for peace, and what is this peace? Well, the last part of verse forty-four tells us. If you go right down to the bottom of the passage, it says, or Jesus says, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. That is a reference to his very triumphal entry. The things, or as the NASB has it, conditions, are merely a, is merely a figurative way to refer to Jesus as Messiah, his gospel of salvation, and his call to repentance and faith. These are the things that, that they denied because their view of Messiah was political, not spiritual. They didn't know Jesus, and they didn't, they didn't know that Jesus is who makes for their true peace. And that would be, of course, peace with God. In other words, Jesus and Jesus alone could reconcile them to God. That's what he came to do. If we understand that Jesus refers to himself and not some bit of information that the Jews had somehow missed, then Jesus is talking about really a relationship with him. That's what they missed. That's what they did not have. You didn't know me, the one who makes for peace. That's what they lacked. He was not the object of their worship or their love. You know the word know, to know, in the Bible doesn't always refer to intellectual awareness, right? 
At times, it also refers to an intimate relationship. Adam knew his wife, and so on. The prophet Amos, for example, is the mouthpiece for God who tells Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. What is he saying? Certainly God is referring to a relationship. Only you have I had a relationship with. Then there is Matthew 7.23, the very frightening passage that shows us the reality of many false believers will face because Jesus had no relationship with them. He says, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I would argue that Jesus' point in Luke 19 regarding the problem with the crowd is not that they were intellectually ignorant, but that they had no genuine relationship with him, the one who makes for peace. They had no intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. So by the end of his Passion Week, they reject him. Now our second truth then, the Lord gives certain people over to their depraved practices without the hope of eternal life. Let's see that in the text. Because this is not only a, a serious claim, but it's also one that's sorely neglected in American Christianity today. The last verse, verse 44 forms a bracket with verse 42 around this last section. And what verse 42 states, verse 44 restates in slightly different words. Both, in other words, affirm that these people didn't acknowledge the time when the Lord visited with them with salvation. As a consequence of rejecting Jesus as their true peace, God solidifies their rejection by forever keeping this truth that they so disdain from them from this point on. This is what I would call a temporal judgment. It's a temporal judgment because God administers it in this age, but it has eternal consequences in that it will lead to a final judgment before the throne of God. While some in this crowd, as I pointed out, do genuinely believe, and they go on to serve Christ and the church, many others of them don't. They persistently reject Jesus, their true peace, by their formal religion for the next 40 years, only to have their lives snuffed out in a violent destruction of Jerusalem. That, too, was a temporal judgment from God. And what Jesus refers to in Luke 19, 43 to 44, here's what he says. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. His prophetic words here are an echo of his earlier prophecy back in chapter 13. You remember there in verses 34 and 35, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who have been sent to her. 
how often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her young under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. In AD 70, Jerusalem was left desolate. Rome raised her to the ground, killing everyone inside. Among the casualties were those who once stood at Jerusalem's gate and welcomed Jesus with shouts of Hosanna and waving palm branches, but they had not known him, nor would they. And in the midst of their persistent rejection, calamity fell on them and brought an end to any hope of salvation. From our vantage point, they missed their opportunity to believe. Beloved, in this Palm Sunday, we are reminded not only of lost individuals, but false, counterfeit, fake believers, imposters of Christ. No doubt they will, in their own depraved minds, justify their rejection of Jesus as the Bible presents them, and still maintain that they are Christians. This is how deceived the human heart can be. We might understand Jesus' proclamation in verse 42 that the truth is hidden from their eyes to be a reference not only to God's willful keeping of the truth from them, but to their own self-deception as well. They are, in their depravity, willfully blind to the truth. In this condition, they are hopeless. And they will discover the error of their ways and the tragic consequences of their rejection later when they stand before God or sooner if tragedy should take them. If there's anything that rings out to us by way of application, beloved, it, it's the appeal from the Holy Spirit that goes forth from the words of Luke at this point. Make sure you have embraced the truth. And if you haven't, do so now. There's an urgency that comes with the proclamation of Christ's message that goes out to the lost, this urgency of faith, the urgency to believe now. While there's time before God gives you over to your own depraved ways, turn to Christ now before it's too late. There is hope now, but not always for tomorrow. This theme of urgency runs throughout the Bible. Moses speaks of it. The prophets speak of it. The psalmists. We see it in Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, the psalmist says. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. At Meribah, or on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, those they had seen though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
Paul concerns that any deceived individuals who were, in, who were lost in the church of Corinth should ignore the gospel. He tells them that it is God's time to save. He writes in 2 Corinthians 6, first two verses, We also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Well, on Palm Sunday, Jesus accuses people of superficiality, and he knows that they have not, nor will they ever embrace God's terms for peace, for reconciliation. The gospel, the gospel is that Jesus Christ satisfied God's terms for peace and reconciliation on our behalf by his life, his death, his resurrection. Make sure that you embrace God's terms for peace, that you are genuinely born again, a true follower of Christ, that you have a faith that obeys. And if you don't, then don't delay. We don't know those whom God may harden in their rebellion. We don't, nor do we pretend to know. Nor do we know how long someone may persist in his or her unbelief before God may grant or may harden his or her heart. We can only warn people not to delay, to embrace Christ as he presents himself in the Bible. Those who say, well, maybe tomorrow, don't realize that depravity is such that there is a greater chance they will fall farther away the longer they delay rather than come around to embracing the truth. That's the nature of depravity. And of course, there is always the the chance that a tragedy will end life abruptly. Car accident, a falling piece of debris, a terminal illness. The message from Jesus today counterfeit Christians is this. The hardness of the heart knows no bounds. If you let it go, you may wind up at the point of no return. Act now. Believe now. Repent of your sin and turn to me, Jesus, the one who makes for your peace. Now. Embrace me. Now. And our God and Father, we are humbled to know that we stand as products of your grace and mercy. We have, that we have embraced Christ, that we stand in him, and that we have the assurance of salvation, and that we will see him face to face someday. But Lord, if it should be that there are those in earshot of this message, of the 11,000 cyberspace listeners of our sermon audio audience or others who may receive this or listen to this, we pray that if they, if they are hardened in their heart, if they have rejected Christ or refuse to accept him on his terms, that they would repent and that they would act, they would believe even now before it's too late. We pray, O God, for your mercy and grace to reign 
in their lives for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.